Hey folks, and welcome to this week's episode of The Prestige. Each week we pick a movie, we talk about it in a movie, we review it, and we discuss some of the ideas and themes that it, is, it sort of throws up with us. As you may have noticed last week, Sam is currently missing in action. He's off being a, a father, so I am pulling things from the archives and roping in my friends to be guest hosts, essentially using emotional blackmail to get uh, my show continuing. <laughs> and so this week, guys, we've got a returning guest host. If you checked out last year, we had a small Spielberg season, and I had one of my good friends, Anna, come on board and talk about Hook with me, which we both loved. Um, and she's come back this week to fill in for Sam. So, Anna, how are you? Hey, I'm well, thank you very much. I'm really glad to be back, actually. I had a lot of fun last time. That's because we're an excellent podcast. That is very true. And, and this week, we're taking a break from our normal continuity. Those who are following along, we've just finished doing a Nicholas Winding reference season. And we're about to start doing a Sophia Coppola season. But in this sort of break point, we, I've kind of thrown it out to my guest hosts to, to pick a film. <laughs> um, and so so Anna has picked this week's film, and we'll get on to that in a minute. But we always like to start with what else we've been enjoying, or what else we've been watching. And normally in the last week, but uh, obviously the guest host this, this week means that, that, that you know, Sam's not being here. So Anna, what have you enjoyed recently? So I will say um, that I have pretty much ignored a series of unfortunate events in all its incarnations. It hasn't really done it for me. I haven't read the books. I wasn't too fussed on the film. But there's a new Netflix series, well, relatively new, and uh, my friends got me watching it the other night, and I'm really digging it. It's got a great aesthetic, the characterisation is fantastic, and so yeah, I've been Netflixing it up with that. That's, um, what's his name, from How Many Mother, isn't it? Neil Patrick Harris, that's right. That's the one, yes. Also from Dr. Horrible. Horrible's Sing Along blog, yeah. Oh my yes. god, he's so great in it. I mean, it's obviously, he's a director as well, so he's very much playing up. Uh, it being his baby, but he does that well, yeah. and it, it suits the character. I can see he has that kind of dramatic flair because I mean, oh, I've certainly. seen the movie. Yeah, was there one movie? I've seen that the first movie with Jim Carrey. Yeah, I've never read the book like that. No, and I, I can see how he'd slip into that role quite well. Yeah, um, and, and he Count has. Olaf, I think he really has. He's making it his own, to be honest. Um, so that's a lot of fun to watch. Very sort of high camp, very dramatic. Um, but I think the real pleasure comes from the narrator. Now, Lemony Snicket is uh, not something I'd even really registered as a character because I never read the books. I didn't really realise there was an authorial voice in quite this way. Um, it's played by... I wish I could remember his name. I'm really sorry. It's played by the guy who voices Kronk in The Emperor's New Groove. That is a deep cut, <laughs> and I don't know... <laughs> <laughs> um, he's got uh, a great, really distinctive voice. He's got classically handsome American good looks, and he's just sort of swanning through the scenes talking about how maudlin everything is. I really dig it. I didn't think I would. Is he um, in actually a character you see, or is it just a, is yes. it just a narrator? You see him. He exists within the narrative. Um, it's mentioned a few times so far. I've only got like six episodes in. It's mentioned a few times so far that Lemony Snicket and um, Count Olaf actually know each other from back in the day. Right. And are not on good terms. So i'm really intrigued to find out where that all goes i'm sure everybody else is miles ahead of me on that one so no spoilers no spoilers fair enough he, his name is patrick warburton yes and he's marvelous and he's got a great face big bigly in favor of that face yeah. <laughs> he, he was in um rules of engagement that's the way i know him from ah okay like one of those saturday morning sitcoms from america got you um yes. i do know him from that yes yes the face mm-hmm. excellent excellent I, I will try and add it to my ever-growing to watch <laughs> of course. So that's what I've been into. How about you? Um, I have 
if anyone follows me on Twitter, is well aware of my, my banging the drum for this film. And the book before it is I've watched Ready Player One. Yes. Right. Um, at, at some point, I want to get someone on the show to talk, talk about that with me. Well, um, I, I have but, watched it too. Let's talk. Have you? Hurrah. Yes. Um, I love the book. So I, lo- I remember way, way back, you and I discussing the book. Yes. Um, and I rec- oddly enough, I recall you loving it more than me the first time around. <laughs> Getting a real hammering on online recently, hasn't it? It has, <laughs> and, and 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 through rereadings, the 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 book really grew on me. Yeah. Um, to the point where for his thirtieth birthday, I made my brother his own Halliday's um <gasps> egg. Oh, cool! In which he is currently a year and a half into trying to solve the <laughs> second key. You clever bastard. Um, so he he's still working through that one. Yeah. Um, but no, I saw it. I, I saw it like opening night. I saw it first screening available. Um, I, I was very looking for the film, and a lot of things have changed mm. from the book to the film. Yeah. But I I completely loved it. I absolutely adored it. It was everything I wanted that film to be. I really enjoyed uh, it. Um, I felt like it was slightly poisoned for me by the attitude of Twitter over several months, which is really tough. I was hoping that wouldn't make a difference, but I think it has. I, I I went. I, I drew a hard line of, of unfollowing, mm-hmm. and it's the first time in my life I've done that because I'm mean, you know I, I like some odd things, I like some niche things. I'm okay with people not liking what I what I like, but I'm like you know what I don't want this poisoned. There are valid and criticisms so, of the thing. There are totally valid criticisms about the writing, about the mm. purpose of authorial wish fulfillment and narrative about Mary Sue's, but nobody was making those valid points. They were just like her her eighties reference. It's for geeks and losers. Yeah. Which, I mean, we had a whole conversation about enjoying things the wrong way and decided that was a dick attitude to have. I, I, I agree entirely. And I have I have friends who have been friends for me for 20 years who I've unfollowed because I'm like, you know what? I just don't want yeah, the, the vitriol you have for this in my life. Yeah. Yeah, completely. I'm glad you loved it. I really loved it. I, as, as you say, there are issues with it. There are issues with everything. Yeah. Um, it has some problems around. And it doesn't better work in the film than I think the book around how it deals with the female characters. Um, yeah. It, it yeah. almost, but at the same time, it's mm, kind of jettison some of the stuff it says about about H. That actually, in H's character in the book, there's some more depth to the fact that she is a young black lady. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, they, they and that's lost to, in the film. Yeah, they had to skim over a lot of stuff. It kind of felt like it took place in a weekend, you know? Yes, yeah. And I think it was one of those things where having read the book so much, I was able to fill in the gaps in the movie more than maybe the sort of the, the virgin viewer might. Yeah, yeah. I think that but is very I, true. Like the relationship with um, with Artemis, for example, mm. is kind of uh, it's a little bit spoilery, so I do apologise. But basically, she t- she pushes him away uh, at every chance in the film. So that deciding to pursue that in a very decisive moment was a little uncomfortable. I see. Yeah, it, it's in the film. She'd given no inclination of interest. It's very different in mm. the book, obviously, because it's a much more slow burn. But I think the thing for me is that it was just it was a good, fun, rollicking ride it for two fun. hours. It was very fun. Um, I loved the references, and there are thousands of references I didn't get. Yeah. Um, but that that's the joy to me. The joy to me is I got things like understanding, you know, Mechagodzilla, seeing Mechagodzilla, seeing the Gundam. You know, these things are yeah, right. The, the, the Flash in the Pan, seeing Firefly for maybe what five seconds. I didn't even catch that. I only read it later. And it, and it's stuff like that. And it's like I I love that. So yeah, I'm 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 riding high on that still a little bit. Totally. Totally fair, but you've got to go into it with 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 a youthful heart and 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 joy to enjoy yeah. it. You know, yeah, definitely, I think so. Moving on this week uh, at Anna's Anna's request, and I'll let her do a little bit of an introduction <laughs> after we uh, play a bit of the trailer. We are we have watched 
the uh, 1976 classic film, The Slipper and the Rose, The Story of Cinderella. Let's get away from it all, far away from senseless violence and dismal disasters. Let's get back to what real family entertainment is all about. Come with me to a secret kingdom in the Bavarian Alps for a completely new musical version of the most famous love story ever told. So, um, being a Cinderella story, I think everyone's familiar with the basic beats. Uh, it is, as you say, 1976. The music was by the Sherman Brothers, and um, it's kind of in the genre of My Fair Lady, that kind of sweeping musical romance sort of sort of vibe. Um, high fantasy, but kind of grounded as well. Uh, it's interesting structurally, and I think that's where I'm going to probably direct most of my attention, just because it doesn't follow all the typical beats of a Cinderella story. That's the benefit of talking about such a common narrative, as we can talk mm. about where it's different. Um, rather than focusing on what happens item by item, because you all know, you know, there's a shoe, there's a pumpkin, it's a whole thing. I'll go straight into my review of this. Now, I, when, when Anna recommended this film to me, I was a bit trepidatious, shall we say. Um, <laughs> Whilst I try and embrace as much of, of film as I can, this kind of thing is very much not my jam. Um, I, I, I'm not a classic movie lover. I'm not a musical lover. Um, and I'm not overly a big fan of what I normally call romantic fantasy, um, be it in movies or even in, in books. Or things like that. that isn't my kind of jam. I'm a hard sci-fi nerd. <laughs> so I sat down with this with a little bit of like, Okay, okay, well, you know, I, I, I love Anna, I'll give it a go. Um, but I will say, it won me over in the first song. Yay! <laughs> Caroline's it really, really won me over. Um, and I think, and I, I'll, I'll touch on this a bit later when we're talking to the recommendations, but it had to me a little bit of what the Princess Bride has, mm. mm-hmm. which is that knowledge of what it is, and not meta-textual approach to it, but certainly a awareness of what it is and where it sits and also the expectations of what we have on it the songs particularly the songs particularly to me have this this edge to them where it isn't all the you know the traditional 1670s sweeping vistas of of musicals or you know Buster Berkeley style notes there's all about that there's one literally about classes structures yeah and it was it was really like not not what I was expecting but it, the, the songs particularly took me in. I was like, you know what? Yeah, I like this. And it helped that it is it is beautiful as a film. Um, I think that the, mm-hmm. the colours and, you know, it, it's it's already set in sort of the kind of, uh, not medieval, but in that kind of fantasy land that we expect, the sort of period piece. And whereas most, so say, BBC adaptions and that kind of thing, often see that everything's, you know, everything's a shade of beige. Right. Here... Nothing is beige. Everything is neon yellow, neon green, bright pink, bright blue. And it was as much kind of Disney-esque in the way it handled colour. And I'm a big Disney fan. So, yes, I, I I went into this being a bit like, all right, well, you know. And I did, a part of me was thinking, Anna's picked something she knows I'm not going to enjoy overlay. <laughs> I was so tempted to. <laughs> because I'm, I'm like, I, I know, like, she, she, like, when you're, when you're friends long enough, like you can be mean <laughs> in nice ways, um, yeah. and I just thought like, you, you've picked this knowing me, and and I, I'm, I'm hoping you're happy that I'm I'm I was won over by it. Completely, completely. I mean, I mentioned Caroline earlier. She's my housemate. She's weary with toil on Twitter, 
And um, she's the one who introduced me to this film, so it means a lot to her, and I was really hoping that you'd like it. So I was torn between picking something that would be hilarious to make you watch, because you'd given me totally free reign, and picking something like this that I thought you wouldn't have heard of, and that might be something a bit new and different. So I'm glad it's been the latter. Well, next time you can pick the pick the former. Oh. Um, <laughs> nice. Sam Sam made me watch the Lone Ranger, so you know you're, you're uh, <laughs> you'll never hit the bottom of the barrel. Believe me. Good to know. Good to know. Although I will try. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> but yeah, I, I definitely agree that the songs are a hell of a strength in this film. Um, they they as you say they know what they are. They're very much in genre, but they're very charming and nuanced as well. Like the first song, as you mentioned, is called "Why Can't I Be Two People," and it's the mm. prince complaining that because he is so very privileged, he doesn't have total freedom. Which, it's fun to kind of go, oh, what a twat. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's kind of fun to think he's a bit of a burk, see where he's coming from, but be like, well, you know, that's that's very royal people problems. Mm. Um, so I quite enjoy that. I, I did, it, it was it was interesting, I think, the, the I enjoyed the sort of the, the, the contrast between these characters. So the prince is very traditional prince shall we say yeah like he probably isn't the smartest man in the field um and he you know he, he puts his country at war because <laughs> of love which he hasn't really got he doesn't love this woman um and he isn't he's not the smartest man you ever meet in his life no right. um, but he's kind you know and, and he's nice and he believes in love and he believes you mm. know he doesn't believe in this idea of the classist structure that he lives in despite the fact that he is entirely privileged because of it yeah and he, he has the privilege to not believe in it because he's at top of it. I think he's intelligent but not self-aware. Like, I mean, yes. He rhymes the word amenable with untenable. So already I'm kind of like fanning myself over here. Yeah, I, I, I did think Hannah's going to love the wordplay in this. <laughs> yes. um, the, 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 one of the songs is um, protocolically correct. Protocolagorically. That, that's a word. That's a word and a half, that is. Hell yeah, it I is. I have to break that one out in Scrabble at some point. Such a great song. But yeah, it, it has that for me, that element of... It's not darkness, because that's the wrong word for it, but just kind of edge and intelligence. Even, I mean, my favourite character, hands down, was the uh, the fairy godmother. Oh, yeah, isn't she marvellous? Played by an, an, Annette Crosby, who, for me, will forever be in um, One Foot in the Grave. One Foot in the Grave, absolutely. Yeah, she's, she's um, so perfect for it. She's no nonsense, she's practical, but refined. Like, But she's also, it, the film sets up that she is the fairy godmother to everybody, to everything. There's a whole scene in which she talks about having to go see the Little Mermaid later in the week and the Ugly Duckling and all this kind of stuff. And she's got this little trinket from Maid Marian and Robin Hood. It's just really lovely. It's just this whole, it kind of hints at this larger world and mm. she's this kind of world-weary. She's we- She's just kind of like, you know, she's, she's exactly that character you wanted to be. Um, mm. And that was just, it, it was lovely. You know, having seen this, this story, obviously there's a Disney version of this story and there are a thousand other versions of this story. There's something slightly um, Pratchett Witch about her, isn't there? Yes, pr- Pratchett was very much a vibe I got from that character, and she is that she is the, I suppose the Greek chorus in many ways, commenting on everything going on around her. Mm. Um, and I really like that role. And I think the, you know, it, it just was interesting the way like the the fairy godmother and the fairy godmother, the, the um, stepmother, evil stepmother and sisters, they were just the right kind of mean. Oh yeah, yeah. they weren't the, they weren't out and out evil in the way they have other things. They were just just unpleasant people. Completely. Completely, their their the um stepmother is haughty and cruel and vicious in mm. exactly the way that she needs to be. Because it, it isn't that kind of film where you know, people die, and it isn't that kind of darkness. But I just love that kind of 
yeah, the edge, the edge to it. Mm. Um, and it, you know, this film was like the the Royal Command performance um, in 1970, whenever it was 76, 79. Um, and apparently, the the Queen Mum loved it. Yes, that's right. And I'm so, obviously it was too late to ask, but I'm so intrigued. Did you love it in terms of? Did did you see the not the irony in that, but the the, the commentary it's making on even on her situation? Well, yes. Um, I think that's a very interesting question to ask. I know she commented that the music in the ballroom scene was the best she'd ever heard. Mm. I don't know that she ever commented on the social inequality and the fact that it's completely not a meritocracy and that causes problems for a lot of the characters. I mean, and it's. I mean, these these are strange parallels to draw, but I don't, I'd almost draw a line between something like this and something like Starship Troopers or for, or Fight Club, in yeah. that both of those films and this film can be enjoyed at a purely textual level. Yes. You know, yes. Starship Troopers is, is a is a fun action romp. Fight Club is you know about masculinity and where it stands. But all these films are really they are textually something, but metatextually they're critiquing it. Mm. Starship Troopers is a you know it is a satire on the fascist you know military um, military industrial complex. Fight Club was being about masculinity, kind of also critiques and satirizes masculinity. And this whilst being about all of the pomp and grandeur and circumstance of this kind of heraldry, it also is aware of all the problems with that. And you can read this film metatextually as this satire of that. And I really like it, but it also works textually, like completely. I've all seen, we've all seen satires. We're like, well, I get what you're saying, but it isn't fun to watch. <laughs> Whereas this is like, oh, it's a fun, enjoyable film, but you can sit and go, yeah, no, it's actually trying to say something as well. It's trying, you know, in amongst this well-known Cinderella story, it's saying something. So there's two things I think are worth outlining about that. One is that, yes, you're right, it can be read completely textually because all the characters are completely themselves. Mm. Like um, Cinderella, for example, is completely innocent and sweet and hopeful. There isn't, a touch of there isn't an undercurrent of she is going to save the day herself. There isn't any of that sort of feistiness you get from modern Disney princesses. She is just a passive, love-struck girl in a way. Although there's more to that, we'll talk about that later. But the thing that I think is different about it, the thing that makes it really interesting to me, is the extra act. You know, mm. the narrative resolves. The Cinderella gets her prince. They're happily in love and they're going to get married, and then it all falls apart. And that's something interesting that not many Cinderella stories really dig into. She gets basically sent away. She gets told that this is risking war for the entire nation. And she makes the first active decision in the entire film. She's mostly just been going along with whatever the fairy godmother says. But she takes the first choice, really, that she has done and says, OK, I am going to leave. I'm going to leave without a fuss. And I want you to actively poison the memory of me with the prince. Mm. I think that is the most interesting decision she makes in the film, and possibly the only decision she makes in the film. There is that. No, I I agree. It was, it was almost like it's that kind of what happens next. Mm. I've always been enjoying. I've always enjoyed stories that are like, okay, you fall in love, you've saved the world. What happens next? Yeah, yeah. Of course. And this and and th- in this film, you know, like you get that. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, they're going to war with the other country. He's spurned his his betrothed, and he's fallen in love, and that's it. Like yes, but. All those problems are still there. Yeah. And and love can't not that love can't solve these things, but it can't. It bottom line is love can't solve international conflicts. No, you're uh, quite right. And I mean it almost it throws back to that one of the first songs by um the King and the Queen. About how you don't you don't marry for love and you marry for, you know, practical reasons and all that kind of stuff. And it's it's that kind of you've got to face up to this world. Um and the film ends up kind of 
coming back and tying it all together and you do find love and you do sort of build the alliances and it is still a sort of a fairy tale story in that respect yeah yeah but so. i very much i'm with you i think that kind of extra twist to the story was very enjoyable yeah she gets fully sent away she gets basically exiled and sent to live mm. on a swing it's it's, it's really um <laughs> strange unfamiliar territory for the story to go in and i think Mm. that's interesting considering how on rails it's been throughout you know there are certain things we know that a cinderella story won't do we know that she won't run away from home she's going to stay with the stepmother and stepsisters that's just how it goes we know she's going to meet the prince we know she's going to run away from the ball and leave a shoe behind so this extra uncharted territory at the end where the prince goes but i love her and the king goes well no anyway yes (laughs) that's quite bold i think I think it is, and it also it kind of reinforces what the first half of the film is saying. Um, in that kind mm. of, you've got to follow these things through to their logical conclusions. Yeah. We, I mean, th- there are so many films, and I'm I'm on record of not being a massive fan of lo- a lot of the what we call rom com genre. I think mm. a lot of them don't have that internal logic. Yeah. You know, if if problems exist and there are real genuine problems in these stories, falling in love isn't going to fix them. I think anyone who's lived in the real world for more than sort of a couple of years knows that falling in love is brilliant, but all your problems are still there. Yes. And all the problems of the practicalities of your life and the practicalities of their lives and trying to merge those things are hard. And, you know, they can be hard across cultures, let alone across, in this film, you know, massive social divides. And it's, it's, uh, it's very interesting. A film of this, of this kind of era can do that because so often I think we have a recency bias a recency bias mm-hmm. to our thoughts on culture in that we well you know these days we we interrogate these things and we deal with them but back in the day they just they're just pretty films and I think some people sometimes we can sort of have us as assumption that the older culture didn't do what we would do these days in terms of you know understanding its place in history and its relevance right. but this film you're right this film turns all that on its head so I think um, you mentioned earlier there's a song called Protocolagorically Correct, which is absolutely wonderful. And I think it's the one song I might have seen before Caroline introduced me to this film. I must have caught it on television when my dad was watching it or something like that. But the silliness of it all is wonderful. It's the king and his chancellors in the library talking about mm. how they're going to arrange this bride-finding ball and how they need to make sure everyone's sitting next to the right person so that they prevent invasions all over this very troubled continent. Um and it's wonderful, you know, the, the fancy footwork, the genteel way they move, how it's all slightly ridiculous and they've all got their wigs on. It's a fantastic sort of satire of, of the British obsession with, with monarchy and status and lords mm. and that sort of um, entrenched power and how it's all slightly daft, but we stick to our traditions anyway because we know it's safe. I mean, I think that, that's the interesting thing is that it's, it's one of those things, if you look at me, I've got a friend who's a QC mm. um, and he, he goes to work wearing a wig. Yeah, and you're like, like he, that. Dave is a very intelligent man who fights really big cases, but like at the same time, it's a little bit silly, <laughs> right? You know, the House of Lords is important, in, or you know, historically, but and we take it very seriously as part of our our democracy. But also, it's really silly. Yeah, absolutely. It's nice because often I think as I say I, I'm not the biggest fan of sort of period drama, especially the BBC style stuff. Because I think they're sometimes they're so po-faced and dour. This I like this. You're like, yes, they're all dressed in tights and and wigs, and that's silly. And, and let's, king, let's show it's silly. And the king is absolutely wonderful for that. 
every little vocalization he makes, you're just like, oh, this guy's great. Yeah. I, I wish I'd looked up his name, actually. I didn't think to see what else he's done, but he's absolutely marvellous, and he's great for highlighting the silliness, because he is blind to his own silliness. Mm. He'll pick up on other people's very quickly. He'll tell people they're being ridiculous, or you know, misunderstand them and say they're being ridiculous, or being completely oblivious to his own. And I, I think that's quite a wonderful touch. He's a great character, very warm. Yeah. He was just—he was the right counterbalance to mm. to the prince, who who was so earnest. Yeah. Um, and it's almost like, yes, son, I appreciate what you've been, but I'm thirty years ahead of you, and I've got the element—not not, not cynicism, but uh, practicalism to him—that yeah, I, I very much enjoyed. Um, the, the the actor who played the king is called Michael Horden. Horden. Um, and he's been in everything, it seems. Um, <laughs> He was in, yeah, um, Lovejoy, Middlemarch, that stuff. Um, but he was the voice of the narrator in the Paddington series in the 70s and 80s and really? 90s. Really? <laughs> yep. Goodness, well, um, I've heard him before then. Yeah, he was in Where Eagles Dare. He, like, it, it's a long, long and illustrious, he was in Warship Down. It's a long and illustrious um, uh, IMDb page. It, it's absolutely epic. But he's been oh, in everything British, it. basically, forever. Mm. <laughs> So yeah, it, I, I, I agree. I think that that's one thing I like about this film is is the casting. Like, it was spot on throughout. Mm. The prince was brilliant. The king was brilliant. Cinderella, you're right. She had that sort of kind of wide eyed innocence, but also like a steely resolve. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting when and how that comes up because most of the time she is extremely passive. She mm. stays at home, feeling a little bit sad, but deciding to make the best of it. And it's the fairy godmother who shows up and says, no, you are going to the ball. That's how I've written it. <laughs> yes. That's how it's got to happen. But there's a lovely moment I like, even before the, the, the um, fairy godmother turns up, in which the she's been sort of banished to below stairs mm. to, to look up things. And the fairy godmother comes down, the, 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 the stepmother comes down and finds it shining and sparkly and all the food looking glorious and laid out. Yeah, and I just thought like that's it. Like she, you, you often think of Cinderella as this kind of passive character till she's rescued by the Godfather. But she is, she's like, okay, this is my life. I can't change this. It's not within my power to change my life. That's what it, I will yeah. do is make it the best. She has that that resolve, and it, you know, she's she comes out to say this doe-eyed innocent, but it's not that she's an innocent. But that doesn't preclude her from being driven and strong at the same time. Yeah, it's like the flip side of the the king's practicality, you know, the sense that there are some things that you cannot change, so you may as well mm. make the best of it. Whereas the prince is very much, why? No, I want to. <laughs> yes, um, which, which is, which is different. The, which is the privilege yeah. of youth a little bit, isn't it? Youth and privilege, yeah, certainly. Um, so the song that you mentioned earlier, Position and Positioning, mm. I thought, first of all, very funny that the servants knew they were coming because they were singing so loudly as they approached the door. That's great. <laughs> That's a wonderful bit of in-world like a wink and a nod to how silly it is that they're singing everywhere they go. Um, but yeah, that's when they really outline just how uh, concrete and how rigid the structure is, how it isn't mm. possible to move between the classes, really. It, it reminds me of a, of a phrase that uh, a Pratchett phrase to come back to. Mm. Um, and it's one that I've, I've thought about a lot in my life um, from where I've come from and where I've got to. Mm-hmm. Um, it talking, it's uh, Vimes talking about where he's from. And his, his phrase was, at the bottom of the ladder, the rungs are awfully close together. Okay. The idea being that when you're at the bottom of the heap, little things mark you as different. Sure. Yeah. So having a clean in in the in the disc world, it's having a clean front step. 
you might be yes. poor, but you've yeah. got a clean front step. And that puts you above the people down the road who are also equally poor, but don't have these. And this was like, well, you think you're above all of us. And so you think the prince is like, I'm the prince, and then there's everybody else. Yeah. And then the servants are like, you say that, but I'm here, I'm upstairs. Then they break down this hierarchy behind the scenes. Yeah. And it's like, in your world, you're this pinnacle above everybody else, but I'm also the pinnacle above everybody else. Yes, down here I'm in charge. Exactly. And it, 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 I really like the idea that so often we're like, well, there's above stairs and downstairs. It's like, well, it's not that simple. There's every, you know, you've got, you know, he's... I can't remember the, 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 um, his role, but he's like the, the head front house and he's got assistant. And then you go behind the scenes where it's obviously a lot less ornate and it's a lot less um, glamorous, but there's still the hierarchy down there of who does what in what order. Yes, absolutely. And I think it's really interesting. I, I want to get your thoughts on this, actually. To what extent do you think the film subverts this idea that people can't move between social classes? I think it's... <laughs> I think the film doesn't subvert it but it offers mm-hmm. loopholes. That's it, that's it. That's um, because the all the people who move, and they do move between the, the class in this film, but they are all done so at the behests of those at the top of the pile. Yes. So we've got so they, um, the prince's sort of uh, companion, John, mm. who's in love with the Lady Caroline. He, um, he says, you know, this is unattainable, this is unachievable, we can never be together. And the prince basically promotes him. He knights him. Yes. So this is one person who's going to move up for love, which is very uh, noble sentiment and everything. Doesn't actually change any of the structural inequalities, but fine. Now John can marry his lady, and he promotes one of the servant boys, Willoughby, to be his mm. new companion. So there's this kind of micro, like, eye of the needle hole through which people can pass to achieve higher things. But it's not based on anything Willoughby's done. He was literally just standing there when the prince was in a mood. I did. I did enjoy this. Um, it, it, it kind of it threw me back a little bit to a conversation we had ages ago, you and I, about how to make friends as an adult. Um, <laughs> and, and my advice was just go be their friend and annoy them to they're your friend. And I enjoyed the way the prince was like, "Right, you, you're my friend now." Yeah, basically. You were a servant. You're not going to be my, my best mate. You're going to do stuff. And it's like, okay, fair enough. But I think like the film does offer that. You know, it's not a, a solve, but it's the idea that you can you can move on. Obviously, Cinderella moved up herself a little bit. As you say, it's at the whim of the prince. All of it. Yeah, nothing. There's nothing within their power to move up. So yeah. you can't you can't run against the system unless you are the top of that system. And even you know, if you consider the prince to be top of the system, even the king to be top of the system, the king is still bound by so many other rules and so many other expectations. You know, the yeah. whole the, the, the song we talked about, the protocolically correct. <laughs> um, that's all about the fact that he he's the king, but he's still he's still bound by a load more rules and a load more structures around him. Completely. Even though he's the top of that pile. And he makes it clear he didn't even choose his wife, you know? There was a sword no. in his back sort of thing. Um, so I think that's interesting that he feels not trapped by his life, but reasonably hemmed in, you know? And at the end, when they do sort of resolve it, and you have the, the cousin falling in love with the betrothed for um, the prince, yeah, him and the other king have a little moment of like, well, here's what neither of us wanted, but we'll, make, we'll hide our shame. Yeah, we'll make do. We'll make they're, do. And they're compromising after a life of compromise in a way that allows for happiness among the younger generation, and I think that's really sweet. And also, it keeps their face as monarchs, and it's just like you're yeah. you're, you're the king, and you have all this power, but that power that power ends in certain places. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, do you have some recommendations um, for things to follow up on this? Things to follow up on this, as in things to watch next. Yes. 
Um, okay, well, I think uh, I watched it pretty hard on the heels of Enchanted, mm-hmm. the sort of semi-animated, semi-live-action princess film, and, and I would say that that's a pretty great companion, because where you've got this 70s film playing it true to type, and everything's played very straight in a way, um, it's nice to then see how we treat fantasy stories now. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've got the similar kind of doe-eyed innocent in the main role, but the, the differences are where I think that's interesting. Um, what else? I also think Into the Woods, I'm sure you've talked about that before on here, uh, Into the Woods is a fascinating musical that deals with a lot of fairy stories, including Cinderella. And again, it sort of analyses her thought process in a way that 70s films wouldn't do. Mm. Um, so I think those are both pretty great follow-ups to see what we've done with the Cinderella story and the princess genre in more recent years. I, 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 I would, I, I'm not a fan of Into the Woods, but, but the uh, other recommendation I'd certainly echo. <laughs> okay. I, I went a little bit of an actor route and sort of thought about who the actors are and who, what else they've done that I think I talk mm-hmm. about. Um, so I mentioned earlier Annette Crosby, I think is brilliant in this. I think she's brilliant in everything. Um, but she does pop up in a film from the 90s that I love, but it's just kind of disappeared into the, uh, into the, the market. And that's a film called Shooting Fish. Okay. Um, which is a film about two con men, um, two British con men, one with one American, one British, um, and they're kind of likely lads in the in the. It's a very nineties film. It's all about mm. fifty pound notes to get rid of. But she pops up as a character in that, um, and so this bit of a chance for me to to ring my bell for that movie um, and through a sort of convoluted series of connections. <laughs> Good call. Um, okay. And my other my other one is actually um, Richard Chamberlain, who played the prince, mm. um, who was I think as I said, I think the character can be quite earnest, and he's. In many ways, one of the least interesting characters in it. I liked the actor. I thought the actor was very sort of watchable. Yeah. And it turns out he's still working to this day. He's still out there making making movies, making TV series. Yeah, he is. And he popped up as a recurring character in one of my favourite shows of the last sort of ten years. Uh, it's a show that's now finished, um, and it's a show called Leverage. Uh, once again about Conman, bizarrely. Um, okay. Once again about this team of ex-thieves, ex-hackers. It's all very silly and, t- and tongue-in-cheek and camp. But he pops up as that, as a recurring character in the later series. And I just thought, you know, I really liked him in this. And once again, I want to uh, point out uh, other shows that I love. So, yeah, The Leverage. If you haven't seen it, it's very good. It has ended now. It went for, I think, uh, three seasons? Five seasons? Um, But it's a good, fun TV romp. I think it's on Netflix if you haven't seen it. I haven't yet, so I must have to check that out. Anna, thank you for coming on and, and, and helping us out. Do you have things you want to plug or things you want to say? And where can people find you? Oh, you know me, I'm not up to much. <laughs> um, I am Thiefree on Twitter, and uh, pretty easy to find all over the internet, to be honest. <laughs> Sounds ominous. <laughs> <laughs> I am everywhere. I am lurking uh, inside your mouth. As always, I'm Rob Kaiju, and you can find us at Prestige Podcast. Before you go, guys, I wanted to plug one thing that we're doing. Another show on our network called The Space Jam Continuum have been going through all the Looney Tunes cartoons since they were sort of launched in the in the early 40s and trying to build a cinematic universe trying to build up a world around these what are otherwise mad cap cartoons they're reaching their one year birthday this summer and so we are putting on a live show we are going to be screening who framed Roger rabbit um, and then they're going to be talking about it and how it fits into the the larger continuity that they have invented around Looney Tunes. They the show is on the thirteenth of June. It is at the Pavilion in Reading. If you want tickets, you can find them at Kaiju FM forward slash live, um, or come find me on Twitter. So if you are in the area and a chance to see 
Who Framed Roger Rabbit for £3, and an evening of people talking um, funny, hilarious stuff come along. Till then, guys, we'll see you next week. Bye. Thank you.